0: Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard.
1: Well, hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Horror Vanguard. Uh, I'm John, joined as always by my co-ghost, Ash. Ash, how are you Uh, doing? I'm doing very well, John.
0: I'm excited for today's episode.
1: Uh, You and me both, because we are joined. We're joined in the Horror Vanguard crypts by another very special guest. Uh, Joining us is uh, John Levitt. How are you doing?
2: Good. I'm busy uh, haunting America.
1: Well, we had a very famous spectre that was haunting Europe, like in the in the 19th century. So maybe it's time for America to have one.
2: Well, you know they always copy whatever Europeans do.
1: <laughs> um, John, for people who uh, maybe don't know you, and could you, how how would you like to introduce yourself? Could you explain a little bit about who you are and what you do?
2: Uh, I'm a writer, artist, and activist with uh, some of my most recent work in the Baffler and the Houston Chronicle.
1: Uh, We will put uh, links, of course, to some of John's work that you can uh, find. And please do follow him him on Twitter, like me and Ash. He is very online and is uh, one of the few good posters in the never-ending posting war (laughs) that is The Discourse.
2: um it feels like such damn faint <laughs> praise uh
1: but we have got you on today to talk about um probably probably a, a, a film that i i enjoyed way more than i was really expecting to uh and i think is an absolute masterpiece we're talking about ben wheatley's adaptation of jg ballard's high rise
2: yeah, it's, I, I saw it. I was a fan of the book and I saw it when it came out at the Toronto Film Festival and I came out of there going, yes, finally, I can u- a movie I can use to explain the post-war collapse.
1: Uh, I think that's really the best way of like dealing with film is that when you come out of it, you have to go, okay, how is this going to advance the cause? <laughs> <laughs> Always be practicing. <laughs> For people who have not seen the film uh, or read the book, it is now time for the now demanded segment <laughs> of uh, Ash's plot recap. <laughs> I, I, like people, people want you to like. I'm not making that up. It's if we stopped doing it, people would be really mad. Um, so Ash, with, with uh, obviously spoilers, if you're still listening to the show after some twenty odd episodes and you and you haven't gotten the the message that. Spoilers are definitely in full effect, then uh, I don't know what you're still doing here. Um, but Ash, could you maybe explain what High Rise is about? I, I will do, as always, my best to
0: accurately recount the events of uh, the film we we're about to discuss. Director Ben Wheatley brings us his 2015 treatise on urban architecture, High Rise. An adaptation of J.G. Ballard's novel by the same name, High-Rise enters the Marvel Cinematic Universe canon with the introduction of Tom Hiddleston's character Loki disguised as Dr. Lang. Lang is hiding out in an experimental High-Rise condo on the outskirts of 1970s London. In a twist, Loki refuses or perhaps cannot use his powers as the tower and its residents slowly lose ties to the outside world as they slip into a Lord of the Flies or, for the more astute and literally minded of you out there, the Avengers level of chaos. Make sure to stick around for the post-credit scene, where young Nick Fury explains to an off-screen Shuma Gorath why they need to reduce all cinematic experience to mere commercials for other franchise entries.
1: Uh, as always, a 100% accurate and completely faithful recounting. I may of have pop, I may have used uh, that uh, as
0: an opportunity to get on one of my uh, several hobby horses and rant for a second. <laughs> really no. no no me me that, being against disney yeah. slowly consuming every single piece of media we can discuss uh never never be upset about that
1: that that seems good and normal to me that that's fine good. i can't i can't
0: wait oh. for the crossover of literally everything in a single movie that's a giant commercial for the next one
1: it's gonna be great <laughs> um uh, what well sorry go on john
2: <laughs> well di- di- what disney is doing is much like what the movie is showing oh us which is the problems of vertical integration uh... of top-down <laughs> management of trying to design trying to design an entire social structure with the needs of the people on top placed first
0: uh
1: you know, you an accurate uh depiction and, a, and an excellent segue as a way of getting us back on top. Segways are weird. Um, the horror vanguard trend of not really knowing how to segue through a conversation. Continues. And as, as usual, it's our guests that
0: can actually do the good segues, whereas we would just be like, uh, movie talk now?
2: <laughs> Speaking of segues, one of the things that makes this movie so great is because it doesn't really have segues. Thing, events flow within each other in a very dreamlike manner. Uh, someone famously says it doesn't have a third act. Mm. It never really explains how like the Lord of the Flies chaos happens. It's just something people sort of wake up into, which I've, I always felt was a good sort of way of ex- how people experience collapse. Like It's not one day someone rings a bell and says, It's civil war now! It's like things just slowly get Yeah, that was shittier. that
0: was one of my the, the things from this movie that really hit hard for me was that like you know in, in like one of the final scenes you still have people working for the people who live on on those top several floors and there are like at this point active cannibals and like like piles of dead bodies and you still have people that like oh I need to go
1: be do my job as a maid today. Yeah, it's incredible uh to think about the kind of the drive to assert a standard of normalcy, uh, and you don't really realize until perhaps uh, there are cannibals next door and your dog has gone missing, um, that maybe maybe things have changed somewhat. Everything sort of just slips into this slowly degenerating chaos, right? Because it starts with, with uh, things like, Oh, there's extra rubbish, the rubbish disposal systems doesn't really work anymore. And then uh, it just sort of spirals downward in a way that is eerily convincing. Because you're quite right, we don't normally get that kind of realistic, uh, expositional understanding of events when we're in the midst of them. And if there's one thing this film is really good at doing, it's, be, it's placing you as the viewer in the midst of this slowly collapsing dystopia
2: yeah and um i think we should probably maybe start with the book it was adapted from
1: yeah yeah absolutely Um, so
2: um high rise is is definitely a ballard book as it is about it is about collapse and horror and regenerate degeneration Mm -hmm. Uh, it's also very expressly a horror book in a way that i don't think this movie necessarily is because you know no one's Slicing their wrists open to feed kittens. <laughs> mm. Like the movie is definitely going more towards sort of a class warfare and like just visceral disgust. There are a lot of like really old naked people in the
1: movie. Uh, yeah, especially like the last half an hour, right, where it's very sort of narrow at the full. Right. Of yeah. The, the pr- prolonged anhedonic
0: yeah, orgy of the people at the top.
2: Ugh. Anyway, so the book.
1: Yeah, take it away. Oh, uh <laughs> I was hoping someone else would.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Great point as usual Ash. Guillermo del Toro is the best anti-fascist horror director. Well said. And with that good point, let's break for commercial. finally done it. One hundred years of fighting investment demons in hell and I finally escaped. Endless torment and bloodshed with only my stalwart companion Rusty by my side. No, no, Rusty. That life is behind us. We can finally retire to a humble life of ice sculpting or open up that diner we always talked about. That's the spirit.
1: Now, where are we? Welcome to John's totally regular and extremely normal bookstore. How can I? Ash, Ash, I haven't seen you in weeks, man. You look, you look a little rough. Well, maybe that's because I've been in hell. Yeah, applying for PhDs is grim. Anyway, uh, how do you like the bookstore? I well, I guess it,
0: it's pretty nice. It looks, it looks like a normal bookstore. well
1: no don't say it well the podcast hadn't been making enough money especially because you were gone so i had to open up john's totally regular bookstore uh we specialize in accursed and forbidden tomes of black magic and uh don't thank me all at once but i even found an incantation to bring you back from hell
0: that (laughs) That's that's pretty nice of you actually. I'm 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 shocked. Uh, j- just make sure to be a
1: little careful yeah. hey, around hey, hey hey, check this out. Check this out. It looks like an old RL Stein book, the Vermis Mysterious or something like that. Um so so listen to this, listen to this. Earth Capsid, never was <laughs> no earth
0: Alright, Rusty. Looks like that diner is another day away. Yeesh. I just can't catch a break. If you like what we do and you want to save us from a squamous Cyclopean fate, make sure to comment and leave us a rating. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com horrorvanguard. And to support the show and get full access to the Arcane Book Club of Horror episodes, check out our Patreon at patreon.com
1: horrorvanguard. And now, back to our show. Um, well, I think it's interesting because if you look at Ballard's career, uh, he goes through the a lot of experimentation with different literary styles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by the time of Crash, which is, what, 1973? uh high rise comes out in 1975 i believe um everything is very sort of plain very descriptive very it's very sort of functional it's not nearly as kind of ornate as his previous work to be honest i am sort of shocked that it wasn't adapted more quickly because it it reads like a film treatment all all you really need all you really needed is the right director to come along and make it work
2: Right, and um, I think it's interesting as a work of adaptation, um, not in that it recreates the events uh, perfectly, although it does hit a lot of the major plot points, but because it really recreates the feeling of reading the book, like the book feels slightly drunk and the movie feels very drunk.
1: <laughs> yeah, th- this movie, this movie feels drunk. This movie, yes, <laughs> this movie very. feels feels like that point in the party where you've only just gone past the point where you could leave and sober up and you'd be fine in the morning. Uh, But instead it's going to be messy and you know it now and you, you sort of lean into it. That's what this film is like. (laughs) Right,
2: And though the book has these like very long descriptive passages, which were very well translated into montages Mm. in the movie. So I thought, you know, technically that was a good way of adapting it. But also, since the movie, not sorry, not the movie, since the book was being written in the middle of, like, Britain in the 70s, which was experiencing essentially the the collapse of its social democratic state, the movie is able to look at that in retrospect and sort of add a politics that wasn't really there in the book. Because it has hindsight.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Um, The movie, you know, famously ends on a Margaret Thatcher Mm -hmm. speech. Mm Mm-hmm. And with a little William F. Buckley kid yep. listening on the radio. Yep. <laughs> and then, of course, the bubble comes out because, of course, the, nexus, the neoliberal society they were building and will spread to the other towers uh, is as bubble fragile as their social democratic state because they did not change the relationship of power.
1: Yeah, well, you just change the kind of, um, you just change the kind of, stru- in, this, in this case, the kind of physical structures, right? You build, you build the tower, but you keep the same hierarchies. And so you reproduce the same power relations, which can be accelerated and intensified by the entwining of human subjectivity with technology, uh, which was Ballard's longstanding concern. And then uh, you reach the, the, the glorious apocalypse that is the end of the film
2: which is the end of history
1: yeah absolutely absolutely even though even though this this so the 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 film is set in one tower um in a development a planned development of five towers sitting around a lake and so right at the end of the film uh, uh tom hiddleston's character uh lang talks about expecting others to arrive so even though even though the, these kind of perfect utopias of, technolo- of technology, of privatized social structure, um, have become so successful. Uh, still, the contagion is 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 always going to spread. Um, it's a gloriously depressing ending. An <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, interesting fact about the book: it was one of uh, Ian Curtis's favorite novels. Um, lead singer of Joy Division, uh, and you can kind of tell you can kind of see why oh, and it's sort of so so the the book I think is quite grimly nihilistic in a way. Um, but I think you started to touch on it, John, that there's a much more explicit political line taken in the film. And so I thought maybe we could jump into talking about the film there and kind of ground the, the politics that it's working with.
2: Right, well, it's... One of the reasons I love this movie so much is that it is so blunt. Like, (laughs) subtlety and shades of meaning are for decadent periods. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, completely.
2: Yeah, well, uh, it's like, it is the most didactic movie outside Snowpiercer. (laughs) And this is basically Snowpiercer, but vertical. Yes, yes,
0: I had the exact same reaction. And
2: and Snowpiercer is just Marxist Willy Mm -hmm. Wonka, so... So what I love about it is that it is really blunt about its its politics and its sort of metaphor that it's working with. You know, there are the people up top, literally Mr. Royal the Architect.
1: Yes, the royals at the top. The royal
2: at the top. And then there are the people at the bottom, and then it's the people in the middle who start causing the problems.
1: Uh, as it ever was, and, <laughs> and ever shall be.
2: And... Um, Things start to go wrong because the rich refuse to fix the system they made. <laughs> essentially,
1: yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, Ash, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Like, I think, um, like the the downfall of of the tower is is prefigured in the structure of the tower itself. Right? It's. I think, like, like to, to maybe nuance that just, just a little bit, it's not that they're refusing, or at least from, from my reading, it wasn't that they're refusing to keep up this tower that they made. It's that, like, the infrastructure of the tower was just never really a concern to begin with. This is all just kind of like a grand exercise for the architect to create his kind of poorly, poorly planned, let's say, a vision of a utopia.
1: Yeah, this the utopian impulse is definitely there, uh, but this is the, but this again is 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 kind of a product of of when this film is set. Right, it's set in the seventies mm-hmm. where the idea is it's the private individual now that can do all of the great things because a- increasingly the 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 the, the post war mandate in Britain is is fractured by this point. Um, uh, mass movements and union organisation is increasingly be, being sort of uh, defanged and having its radicalism sort of slowly stripped out of it. And all of those kind of big, uh, social democratic structures are starting to look kind of ossified and bureaucratic and, and, and unable to do all of the great stuff that they said they were able to do. Right. So there's this utopian idea of like, well, you get the, you get the great private individual to come along and fix everything. Um, and, and the end result is, is, as you say, it's foreshadowed in the very structures of the building, because you still have the same kind of people, and that's where the problems come in. <laughs> but,
2: but even, you know, prefiguring the neoliberal pivot in the character of yeah. Lang, you have the, the ideal citizen under neoliberalism. He has no connections to anything. He has no society. He has no family. He has seemingly no value other than v- virtue, other than self-preservation
1: yeah there's that there's that really uh sort of chilling scene where they try and they're trying to get uh lang to lobotomize wilder because uh and i'm, I'm sure we'll get onto him in more detail oh, yeah and 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 wilder turns to turns to lang and says you're you're the one that people should be worried about <laughs> you're this you're this self-contained resilient little cell." that doesn't that that doesn't express anything uh that just takes in everything and is seemingly infinitely malleable and can and will become whatever anybody wants um and that's the what you're the one people should be worried about right i
0: right. i love that line so much because wilder specifically calls lang professionally detached and it's just mm-hmm. it's just this amazing little lance to the professional kind of like managerial technocrat class which is really like, you know, the Pied Piper leading us to the chaos that we're heading into. Mm -hmm.
2: Right. And and there's that, there's that really great party scene where Lang gets invited, you know, to the Royals Mm -hmm. penthouse and they're all dressed in all white, you know, French court outfits, Marie Antoinette Mm -hmm. things. (laughs) Uh, If again, if this movie wasn't blunt enough, I love it. And, I, he's obviously, he's wearing a, a black business suit, so not only is he out of place visually, he's out of place socially because he's brought a bottle of wine, which is something you do to like to a middle class or a professional class mm-hmm. party, not an upper class party. But I also thought it was interesting, the only other people wearing uh, black are the bodyguards and the yep. servants, so he is being visually coded as a servant of mm-hmm. the rich. And isn't that the great lie the rich always tell the professional class? No, 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 you're not our servants, you're like junior right? aristocrats. Yeah.
1: Uh, and there's that amazing moment just before he's thrown into the lift where they take his wine off him and just go, "Ah, oh, cheap bastards." Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, to, uh, to the whole Mary Antoinette Blunt thing, too, when they're um, after after the Society of the Tower is just totally collapsed, and the, the aristocracy on the top floor are like, OK, we need to go down to the grocery store and, and get some provisions. And they start listing off what they need. And they're like caviar, liquor. And then they, they the camera like pans to the architect's wife and she's just like cake.
2: well also when they're when they're planning like these excursions they start to use the language of colonialism yeah we we must seize the 13th floor Mm -hmm. and render its resources (laughs) to our own and you know and also like you could talk about the visual metaphor of the penthouse Mm -hmm. all day the you know mrs royal is much younger she has more aristocratic manners she owns a horse right a horse (laughs) at the top of a tower Right, this utterly ludicrous thing, which is like, you know, like monarchy, this utterly ludicrous thing we've let in. Mm -hmm. But she also, um, the director in an interview said when he was reading the book, he was thinking about people who buy uh, these expensive works of art and then keep them locked up in collections or locked up in, like, tax havens just outside airports. And the entire apartment, the royal apartment, is just filled with priceless works of Mm -hmm. art. Mm -hmm. So... So there's sort of like this big talk, utopian talk from Mr. Royal about like public good and working together, but they're in fact still just hoarding all the power and resources. They're just being kind of nicer about it, Mm. which I thought was a very good jab at like British social democracy.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this idea that it's, you know, really, really private corporations want to do good. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh-huh. Yeah, we're still going with that line, are we? We're still... <laughs> well,
0: well, one thing I think we're all failing to consider here is just how many tourism dollars that the monarchy brings into the UK every year. <laughs> and the good that those dollars do for the community.
1: They do a lot for charity as well, the, the royals. They do a lot for charity. Um, and I think that's important.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, um, is it useful to talk about the plot at all, or like the succession of events, yeah. or do we just go with like moods and themes?
1: Well, i I think I think to talk about plot is not terribly useful, but to talk about this, the order of events is probably more useful right. because yeah. there, there are. This is oh good. Go on. So, well, this isn't a film that has a kind of strong concern with uh plots uh and it is it is very much a kind of mood piece but i think that's the best way to talk about it would be, be to maybe give people who've not yet seen the film although you should um uh, a, a kind of a sense of the order of events that, that we go through
0: yeah i was just i was just gonna say that um, when, when i was watching this movie one of the things that kind of occurred to me was that in a lot of respects this is like mother the aronofsky film except for yes, competent yes. and good uh, and not reactionary
1: bullshit right
0: yeah and like so so there 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 is a plot in the sense that like we we are watching a sequence of of images and narrative cul-de-sacs through which characters grow and have arcs
1: um, no i i think that's right actually i and, and so so, how, if if we were to kind of try and map out the key moments uh, from beginning to end, what would what would you put in there?
2: Well, Lang enters the tower. <laughs> he gets his apartment. He and I, the director has a previous background in advertising, and I think you can really tell in like the mm-hmm. initial shots of the tower because it looks really good. It looks like it could be this like retro-future uh, utopia. The instructions, like for here's how to put together your new perfect apartment, like our very Ikea. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he starts to join the the social life of the, uh, the swinging social life of the tower, which is seemingly all based around these increasingly weirdly decadent middle-class uh, house parties. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was reminded of Abigail's party a lot during those scenes which also has like a very similar mood of like oh dear I think Britain is going to pieces and none of the respectable people are willing to admit Mm -hmm. (laughs) it and that that play also has like a similar feeling of like oh no the entire party has just gone from tipsy to drunk yeah um a side note someone pointed this out when Hudson Yards was built the horrible high-rise in-waiting structure here in new york mm. is that a big feature of the book high rise and of the movie is that the balconies allow people to interact socially with
1: mm-hmm. their neighbors yeah, yeah
2: yeah there are no balconies in hudson yards
1: oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well yeah you can't have people actually talking to one another that's that's
0: inconceivable no, no that's a point of social interaction we have to stomp those out
2: and uh, what happens is this sort of slightly hallucinatory series of petty gripes between people. Like, everyone is terribly envious and wants to be, like, one or two floors up. And it's all the problems are really being caused by those people's two or three floors down.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely.
2: And it starts to become a sort of fight for resources and a sort of jockeying for position in this very village green preservation society way,
1: <laughs> yes, yeah.
2: and it all culminates with uh, Wilder taking a bunch of children into what was supposed to be a communal resource—the pool, which had been quartered off by the rich for a private party. Now we could go on; we could talk about Wilder if we want to. Uh,
1: yes, I think we, I think we absolutely should. So, one hundred percent, unflinchingly, um, yes. <laughs> uh, so, so to kind of map things out. Uh, maybe it's uh, useful to kind of talk in terms of in terms of levels, right? So uh, Hiddleston's character, Lang, moves into the 25th floor and he meets uh, on, the, I think, the floor above uh, Charlotte yeah. Mel- uh, Melville mm-hmm. on the 26th floor, who is a very important figure. And then uh, he meets Wilder and uh, Wilder's wife, Elizabeth, who is very heavily pregnant. Uh, no, it's not Elizabeth, Helen, it's Helen, yeah. right? Played by Elizabeth Moss, that's why, that's why I got those names mixed up. Uh, and Wilder is this sort of renegade filmmaker slash documentarian. Um,
2: who's never seen working or producing anything.
1: <laughs> so so what do we think about the character of Wilder played by Luke Evans?
2: Um, well, it's, it's the most Luke Evans performance, yeah. which is great. And I, I just, I really love it's like in this movie all about like the horrors of the rich and revanchism and neoliberalism there, Wilder really is just kind of a stab at the left. Mm-hmm. You get the feeling that this is someone like who's really good at parties and doing a lot of Coke and talking about revolution, but actually doesn't yes. produce anything. And has this long suffering, eternally pregnant wife who's <laughs> constantly mm-hmm. cooking. Although I, I would like to point out there's, there's that very pregnant line where she mentions like the baby was supposed to be due and it won't, it hasn't come out yet, and like in the theater, I basically said, "Ah, I see." So the new world struggles to be born.
0: <laughs>
1: Zing. Uh, Ash, what do you think about Wilder? Uh,
0: so something that that I found really interesting is that this movie has two competing documentarians. There's Wilder, and there's um, there's another documentarian, and I'm completely blanking on his name, but he does like nature nature documentaries and and in the end it, like when after wilder's kind of uh, like either lost his mind or reached his breaking point he's trying to like document the collapse and like you know uh, helen makes a comment that like oh you're doing another prison documentary so there's there's another like incredibly not blunt line about this society <laughs> but um so so we get the we get this contrast right and like, I think you're right about Wilder being a, a, a stab at, like, this kind of, like, unorganized individualistic impulse within the left, right? Like, there's a giant poster of Shay in, Wilder, yeah, yeah. in Wilder's apartment. And and that that is just, like, an absolute call-out. And I think, like, something interesting, we, there's another throwaway line where Wilder's wife is an environmentalist, and she's trying to talk to people about recycling, and so all, all of the kind of like, uh, I guess, progressive uh, characters of the film and the progressive impulses within the film are, are all still mitigated through this kind of like neoliberal, capitalist, hyper individualistic take. You know, like mm. at, at no point in the film do we see like the closest thing we get to like any kind of collective solidarity amongst the lower classes is when they when uh, Wilder leads the children to go storm the pool
1: yeah he's this he's this interesting sort of dilettante yeah. figure right who, who doesn't seem uh, really able to to commit to, to anything with any seriousness um slightly feckless has, has seemingly never really done any work ever mm. but has these grand plans of 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 making kind of uh great works of art to to redefine redefine the documentary film.
2: So I was just like it's interesting that it could be sort of like a jab at the nature of art to change things you know like the whole sort of joke in sorry to bother you is that like you can document the abuses all you want people ultimately don't care yeah uh, but also I think it's interesting that there are all these documentarians because all Lang really does is observe.
1: yeah, absolutely absolutely there's this there's this kind of uh panopticon effect happening throughout the building um yeah but, uh, with the
2: uh, i've lost the word for them the things that are not outside your house that are not part of your house balconies, balconies. balconies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we got there in the end yeah yeah uh, yeah, yeah charlotte so- is always
0: kind of observing downward onto lang's position
1: yeah, and uh,
2: Charlotte kind of like functions like a spy.
0: She
1: knows everything. She knows everything apparently.
0: She's very clearly the the stand-in and metaphor for class, like like the idea of class treachery, right? Or at least like that. That, yeah. that was my read on her anyway. Was that she's kind of like she is she is of and from the, like the the lower classes, but because of like the the incident of uh, Toby, I think is the name of the little William F. Buckley clone. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, but but just because of that, like she was able to leverage, uh, you know, kind of his, I think we're led to believe, accidental or at least unplanned, uh, pregnancy with with uh, Toby, to kind of betray and give up everyone beneath her, and she just spends her entire life just uh, floating around the tower, partying, having sex,
2: and being an informant. One yes,
0: yes, yeah, absolutely. Because she always stays at the top, which means she's got use.
2: And uh, so, after the pool is taken over and the chaos happens, you know the royal, the members of the royal apartment, like immediately start the revanchist campaign, which I thought was good because like it is such a, mi- it is such a minor thing, but it's like when do the most biggest restrictions against leftist organized happen it's during peaceful protests
1: yeah absolutely uh, and it because all wilder has done is take all the kids from a birthday party to go swimming <laughs> in 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 what is supposed to be as you pointed out a communal resource for the entire building um but that has to be that has to be squashed that has to you know those lower those lower floors have to be put in their place
2: and, at, and as it continues and goes on, you have this re- regression of the upper classes, which is interesting. The women immediately become property, yep. and they start having, like, these communal harems. The men just stop wearing pants and start looking like toddlers. <laughs> and that's when the real sort of changeover, the, the SOS sequence starts to begin. Mm-hmm. In which people are aware things are falling apart, but they kind of also can't stop partying, which again feels very seventies. Right, right. yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: uh, and also, I think weirdly feels very contemporary. I mean, we we exist in 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 uh, a, a kind of nightmare scenario at the moment, um, but at the same time, we're constantly. Uh, sort of shown all of these things that are designed to be sources of gratification, constant gratification, constant entertainment, constant uh, stimulus. Uh, But even though we we are also aware that maybe some pretty significant things in the world right now are going horribly wrong, uh, and people should probably be doing something about that, it seems incredibly difficult to articulate why... for, uh, for the kind of individual subject, I think, why is that? Why why is that happening? Why is this slow decline? This this well, not slow really in the contemporary society. Why is this? Dec- you know, the house is on fire, but still, there's a new Marvel movie coming out next year. <laughs> that is that is ex-
0: this is fine. Everything is. That is fine. exactly what I was thinking about. Right, like I was thinking about like uh, what when um we get to the point in the movie where. Uh, Royal, uh, another another really not blunt, subtle name that you had to be super smart to pick up on, uh, mm-hmm. and and the rest of the aristocracy kind of start having this like eternal pointless orgy. I was kind of I started to think about like okay like what would twenty forty fives high rise look like, and it and it would just be a bunch of like. People anhedonically like watching a Marvel movie and then having like a four-hour Reddit post conversation about the meaning of the post-credit scene and and what the next movie is going to be or something like that,
2: while completely surrounded by refugees. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, in the in the middle of like you know it's 120 degrees outside in in Wisconsin in the spring, and then people are just kind of
1: like, oh, did did you see what Captain Marvel did in that movie? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because that's not that's nothing more than an extrapolation of the current material conditions, right? Mm-hmm. Which is exactly what this film is. It takes um, it takes the vision of the future that, that Ballard had in 1975 and puts it in a 1975, a future a future that has already happened, as Tom Hiddleston's character says right near the beginning of the film. So, yeah, I think I think there's this. Slow, irresistible slide into uh, depressive anhedonia.
2: Right, and there's like you know these just these really great visual me- metaphors. Like I always want to point out that this is a really beautiful film to watch, mm. uh, not only because of like the retro-futuristic design. Uh, it's just really well lit, oh, yeah. and like its visual sense. I, I always complain about American movies are to be listened to and <laughs> looked at sick bird. but like I could watch this movie with the with just the soundtrack which is also great like at one point Hiddleston is trying to paint his apartment and he gets paint this blue paint splattered all over his face and he looks like one of the Icini who are about like you know to burn London down
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely
2: it's woed um, but like going back to your point, John, about uh, a future that has already happened, is this perhaps where we bring in Mark Fisher? Bum,
1: bum, bum. Uh, yeah, probably. Pro- I, I mean, in, in my defense, we're about half an hour in. And to be honest, I was expecting me, my, myself to do this in like five minutes. I mean, it's so your well-past due. Ding, ding, <laughs> ding, 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 Mark Fisher bell. Yeah, the Mark Fisher air horn <laughs> just goes off in the background. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: It's just that sound from
1: Annihilation. <laughs> yeah, but this is... Um, Fisher wrote about this film, actually, and, and saw it as uh, an extremely um, positive and, and important political film. Um, but he talks about it. There's this There's this uh, great point that he makes where he talks about it as an example of bourgeois insularity, which reaches its kind of... Um, totality in that like the poor or like lower class people don't even register as people anymore or even as objects, except as like objects of contempt. Um, There's that there's that moment where some of them are talking in the royal penthouse about the, the cleaner, about the maid. And she says, well, she, I, I, she says, I, I have to pay her the money I owe her. Apparently, why are poor people so obsessed with money? <laughs> it's like these people that like the, the rich, the, the kind of bourgeois have turned in turned their gaze inward into themselves, into a kind of narcissistic stupor to the point where they can't even see any other kind of person as an actual person.
2: Well, yeah and I think um, connecting to what Ash said about how the movie is really about the limits of individualism to actually accomplish anything because like if you take individualism to its absurd conclusion, you end up with the high mm-hmm. rise mm. And you know the ending where everything will be great as long as we go and um, loot and pillage the other towers <laughs> yeah. and bring our way of thinking to them you know they're not a collapsing Soviet Union. we can completely privatize. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, As as Fisher puts it, this world without apparent solidarity, the callousness and brutality of the English boarding school liberated from any master is the fantasy space of the new bourgeois. A fantasy space which has served as the template for the neoliberal remodeling of actual social relations.
0: Ooh, Fisher's so good. (laughs) Annoyingly so. Uh, Annoyingly so. (laughs) Uh,
2: And it just. Sorry. No, go on oh it, it just like it gets even further underlined again at the end of the film
0: which
2: mm-hmm. uh the director said he wanted it to be a reference to carpenters they live except it's uh, margaret thatcher talking about how there is no society and this william f buckley clone looks at a little bubble floating yep. away
1: um what did you think about the ending a question for both of you <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, I thought it was, you know, supposed to saying, hey, so, you know, the thing that happened to the high rise, because the high rise is Britain, is what happened to Britain, and it's now going to happen everywhere. But ultimately, it is just as fragile as the so-called utopian, top-down utopian society it created. So I actually thought it was kind of hopeful, but that could just be like my anarcho-syndicalist reading of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Ash, what about you? Hmm. As far as far as like that that very
0: last sequence goes, when we have got the uh, uh just just fantastic like mini me William F Buckley thing going on along <laughs> alongside like, and he's like astutely smoking his pipe, and we've got Margaret Thatcher playing in the background. I I just like I, I thought that was hilarious <laughs> because it is like so so we have we have Wilder who's kind of like this jab at like the the individualistic left who who want perhaps perhaps even like earnestly and truly want a better world and social change but like their way of doing it is to do nothing essentially
2: it's as ego driven as the people. yes at the top. yes
1: exactly it's he, yeah they' definitely wild is definitely somebody who's sort of benefited from those uh, so, uh, social democratic institutions of popular modernism right you probably went to film school and didn't have to pay because it was the 70s and so you could do that and then you maybe get some like freelance editing work and then you save up to move into one of the lower floors of these new buildings uh but there's no there's no real kind of drive there is there right and i think um, i
0: think I, uh, you know i really hope the kid's name is toby because in my head I keep calling him that <laughs> and I might be entirely wrong but um, uh,
2: this is where Toby Young came from
0: <laughs> but yeah when when like when like the little the little boy is is kind of like to just astutely listening to this Margaret Thatcher speech you know it is it is this absolute just kind of like lambast of of figures like William F Buckley and then this kind of like quote unquote intellectual center right you know, like like these uh, these like uh, I guess what would later go on to be Christopher Hitchens and now like Richard Dawkins and those types, because they're just like they are completely vacuous children, just just smoking their little bubble pipes on top of a co- like a collapsing world, mm-hmm. and ju- just as just as we have the ludicrous figure of Wilder, we've got these guys who are just like infinitely sillier.
2: Yeah, and well. I think it's really telling that he's listening to a Mm -hmm. radio because a radio is like a mouthpiece. This guy's like a stand in for all of these media figures. And also what will become one of the most radicalizing forces in the post seventies era, but talk radio. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think the ending, actually the film as a whole, you know, you've said frequently, John, that this is like uh, the high rise is Britain. And I think, in the contemporary context of British politics, what you kind of can understand is that slow slide into the undoing of any kind of shared social basis for for kind of life and class so- solidarity. That can be unpicked over, over the course of a generation or so. I mean, that's something Thatcher said, right? That the aim was not to, was to remake the soul of people. It was to make it an entirely different kind of person. And so this this is what, 2015, this film comes out. Mm-hmm. So that's almost uh, an entire decade of uh, right-wing austerity and the slow the slow cancellation of a, of a, uh, a properly social democratic future of British politics, you know, uh, with literally 100,000, if not more, disabled people dying because of the way they were treated by the government. So what this film is really good at is condensing the slow slide of uh, Britain into this intoxicated anhedonia from the span of, what, 15 years into, bang, two hours. This is what it looks like. So for me, the ending, the ending is both prophetic and slightly uh, very depressing, because even though I think you're right, Ash, like they're infinitely sillier but they're not seen that way. They're taken deeply seriously. They're at the top of the high-rise <laughs> Literally now.
2: sitting on top yep. of the high-rise.
1: Um, and, and the forces that have produced that state within the high-rise have only intensified, right? It's become a generational thing. You've made an entirely new subject of people.
2: You get people who start gigantic drunken fistfights on boats because they saw a clown. <laughs> <laughs> I was so excited that happened this week, knowing this episode was coming up, because it was just like High Rise Two, blood of the water.
0: <laughs> but, oh my God, High Rise w- Two is uh, Kevin Costner's Water World.
1: Yeah, I've just I've seen
0: the light now.
2: <laughs> well, I, I'm the sunny, funny American, so like my takeaway is good. So the answer is, as history always teaches us, solidarity. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes, yeah. Uh, but but a kind of a kind of Ballardian Fisher-esque reading is on what basis do you construct that if the if the if the very because whatever solidarity is going to be the solution is going to have to be an almost an entirely new form because we have almost entirely new kinds of people right we have we have a, a, an entire uh, generation, multiple generations of of Langs, of Robert Langs, of these perfect neoliberal subjects that have to be in so. Uh, I, I was going to say sort of deprogrammed, but it makes it sound like a cult. But, is it, <laughs> but that is, is a hundred percent a... accurate way to phrase Neoliberalism it. Neoliberalism is state religion, yeah. <laughs> um, so they have to be converted. Uh, so that's 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 maybe the the way in which I think it's a little more depressing than that. It's a little more bleak. How do you stop that? Um, degeneration of the high-rise spreading to the next one and to the next one. And the answer is, well, uh, can you even? It's something you say on Twitter quite a lot, John, which is like, you're not an accelerationist, but the people in charge seem to be.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm not thinking they're thinking... I don't think they're thinking these things through very no, far.
0: No, no.
1: Uh, oh, well, maybe
2: the future is Helen's baby that can't be born. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, I mean, but this, this goes some way to explaining why especially in the British left and like 2014 to 2016, there was that uh, kind of resurgence of interest in leftist accelerationism with um, uh, people like Alex Williams and Nick Cerncheck and Mark Fisher. But that also has within it, there is, there is the other kind of other side of the coin, which is the slightly much more much more bleak uh, uh, and authoritarian visions of accelerationism
0: yeah um so so one, one thing that that your comment brings to mind for me right is you know you, you see this entire society collapsing and in, in the the lower classes who as as they have, you know, for history, and as they do now, hold all of the power, but have been duped into believing they don't. Just kind of mm-hmm. acquiesce to to the collapse of the world around them. And we we, we see that from the beginning, where they're, where they're like, "Hey, we've been without power for a couple days," and then like the the kind of like these functionaries of the functionaries of the aristocracy are like, "Oh, well, you're behind in your bill one day, so you really can't complain about it, can you?" And then that kind of yeah. stifles their budding resistance. But one of the things that I was thinking about while I was watching them kind of just just essentially allow this to happen was this idea of prefiguration, right? Like, So prefiguration is pretty common, or at least common-ish, amongst uh, anarchist theory, and it suggests that in order to develop a new world, we need to start building the capacity for that new way of life within people while we're still in the old world, often phrased as uh, building a new world in the shell of the old. And it's something yes. that's completely missing from this film, right? And it's why, like, even even when we're, th- like, three months post-collapse, you know, we still have the, these, like, lower-level people just, like, c- continuing on as if this is, like, anywhere near an acceptable or, or good way to live. And it's because they've never there's never been effort put in within the context of the high rise to develop any kind of, um, Oh my God, agential, I was just blanking on a word there, agential capacity within these people to start doing these kind of like, uh, like, like ways of living and making choices for themselves. I
1: think that's a really, I think that's a really important point. And I think um, it's, it's, there's a temptation, especially I think for, uh the contemporary left maybe to to think of well everything will be fixed come the revolution when 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 capitalism is gone everything will be fine um but there is no pure revolution there is no uh you know um eschatology of revolution where it'll just arrive and the new world will be born and then everything will be fine from then on No, Um, no matter
2: how much we want
1: yeah but but because for exactly the reasons that this film explains, right, the same structures are physically still there, yes. conditioning people to act in ways which are repressive and authoritarian and reactionary and revanchist. Um, so I I think solidarity is, is half of the answer, and the other half is struggle.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think, I think the film actually even has a good example of this, and that's patriarchy, you know? Like, patriarchy is clearly uh interwoven with and and difficult to separate from capitalism but it also predates and can theoretically outlast capitalism and we we, Mm -hmm. we see that in the film like as society completely collapses uh patriarchy just gets more powerful you know like we yeah
2: royal ends up with like a yeah yeah
0: we, we we have like these these kind of like throwaway lines of like royal and his uh two other uh aristocratic buddies where they're talking about like like, oh, what like what work are the wives doing today? And then um I think they're there I think this line was about Wilder, but I'm not sure it might have been about his character. But they were they were it was during the discussion about Wilder and what is to be done about him that they were talking about how he's started raping people he should not be raping. And mm-hmm. it's just like, you know, at, at that point in the film, capitalism has entirely collapsed. They're in full decay, but patriarchy is arguably stronger than it was at the beginning of the film.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and uh, going to some earlier discussions about uh, being unable to imagine a life outside the high rise, and there being, like, no discussions of building, like, a dual power Mm -hmm. system. I always think about the supermarket. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, like, it is this idea of this, like, this modernist utopian project where everything is just so and organized fine and delightfully, but there's no, you know talking about like Thatcher building Thatcher and Reagan building new people and Thatcher saying her greatest achievement was new labor Mm -hmm. you know we've had like 20 years of people's political imaginations being completely stunted and turned into these like weird little bonsai trees Mm -hmm. so you know really the only like working class character who has a a line at all is the cashier and she is just completely checked out and is just reading by teaching herself French
1: yeah yeah, absolutely. I thought that was an incredibly interesting moment because it, all it takes is one comment, right? All it takes is he picks up the book and just hands it to her, and that's that's the that's the escape route. That's the way out.
0: I think that so so this leads me to an interesting question for the good group, right? Um, so both I guess we could we could talk about this both in the context of the narrative of the film itself and its broader uh, metaphoric implications but why don't people just leave <laughs> i feel, i feel like that that is a, that is a question uh, a lot of people might have while watching the film for the first time and it might be fun to discuss because they're never imprisoned right no one, no one is is locked within this building it's not like there's like a door mechanism that fails and then they all get trapped inside mhm
2: well it, it it's very no exit yeah. isn't it you know the door to hell opens but no one goes door to hell opens but no one goes mm-hmm. through but also, you know, in the broader metaphysical sense and in the book, people don't leave out of this sort of perverse desire to see what will happen yeah. next, which as an American, who boy do I right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> but in, in the film, people don't leave for, for in a way, a kind of uh, slightly more sinister reason, which is that they don't want to. Mm-hmm. They don't mm-hmm. want they don't want to leave. Because they've been told that this is the place where all of their desires can really be fulfilled, yeah. right? There is there is a, there is absolutely a explicit connection between the violence and and class warfare that emerges and that kind of indulgent anhedonic sex party vibe that that goes throughout the entire middle middle hour of the film, is that it promises them the liberation of their libidinal desires, right? What do you really want? <laughs> so they don't they don't, yeah. they don't leave because they don't want to leave.
2: What are they going to do? Go back to a two up, two down <laughs> yeah. in North London?
1: Yeah. What are they gonna do? Get a job? When you've when you've, you know, broken down the door of those those bastards on, on floor fifteen with a with a mallet and stolen all of their stuff, can you really go back to a nine to five?
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I I was just listening to the podcast, um, It Could Happen Here, which, like, a war journalist that sort of lays out the case of what, like, a long-standing American insurrection would look like, and he has an entire episode called, Sometimes During War, People with Chronic Conditions Get Better Because They Have an Outlet. Hmm. Uh, Yeah. Like, there's suddenly a structure to their day. They can go conquer floor 16. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And to be real, the you people can, on floor sixteen had it coming. So
1: yeah, I mean, just monsters, all <laughs> of them. But but you see it like even on the individual level, those those people who externally are so respectable and so have so much cultural capital, their news readers, their actors, their are their doctors, as soon as they get behind those those sleep doorways, like all of that, there's this kind of. Uh, revolt against the external, right? So they, they don't leave for the for the for the simple reason that that we are the subject is inserted into capitalism not just on the level of productivity but on the level of desire, right? Uh, I talk about Wilhelm Reich all the time, but he talked about you know why do people desire their own repression? It's because because well in a way because capitalism offers us what we th- what we think that we want. We want the chance to indulge those dark libidinal urges
2: and the desire to repress others as we have been repressed yeah
1: absolutely and those 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 desires are you know to to quote what i think is now the unofficial slogan of this podcast that horror wants to do things <laughs> to your body that yes. those things those things will will disgust you those things will revolt you but there will be a part of you that really likes those things too um and this that's what this film is really good at zooming in mm-hmm. on
0: yeah <laughs> Yeah, I think there's um I think kind of going building and building off of what you're saying. There's like um there's there's a systemic implication in here too. We get that scene where um I believe it's Wilder and Lang and they're outside and like they just see all of these cars, right? And there there are so many cars and they're so soft focused in the background that that it just blurs together in a sea of shining metal. Mm. And you know, like they're, they're really discussing leaving. And then Lang's just like, well, I would, but I, I can't seem to remember where I left my car. (laughs) And like, like it's, 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 it's hilarious. And it's also like structurally and on a systemic level, the only way out they've ever, they've built for themselves is individualism. It's the individualism and the individualistic freedom represented by the, the personal vehicle, right? There are no buses Mm -hmm. or, or light rail going back and forth to this tower complex. It's just your car. You know, you and like we we see like what I what I think is maybe a part of London way in the background, so um, you'd have to like just walk all all the way back to the city with whatever you can carry from there. You know, you've kind of been mm-hmm. damned by the very structure of the system to be imprisoned in this tower.
1: Yeah, absolutely, but it's an imprisonment that you willingly accept.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, th- I, th- I think yeah, it, the- it might also be worth pointing out that um perhaps for some of the people in the lower echelons of the tower, like. Moving is just functionally impossible. Like Lang could do it, and the people yeah. on Lang's sphere could easily just just you know kind of cancel the lease and go sign a new one and take a momentary financial hit. But you know maybe for like uh, Helen and Wilder, moving all of those kids and their home on um, what is definitely like because because Helen is their only income it seems and she works for the tower. That mm-hmm. that moving is for them functionally impossible.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um. A question that might be interesting to think about. Um, we have long held the line correctly that all films are horror films. Um, but is this one? Is this a horror movie? Oh, yay. I was going to ask
0: this at the end. I'm so glad that we're talking about this. Is this a horror movie?
1: What, what do you both think?
2: Well, um, the book is definitely a horror book. I know because it gave me nightmares. <laughs> uh, yep. Uh, but... I didn't, I didn't necessarily have the same sensation of horror watching this film that I would with other horror movies. It did things to my body, <laughs> but not in the ways I associate with hor- with more traditional horror movies. This is more like an, an ideological horror movie. It's like class warfare horror. Uh, the idea of like, this is what's lurking under all your systems of oppression, and the instant they're allowed to do it, this is what they're going to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh oh my God! I just realised that this is the first Brexit horror movie. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. Like, that—that's exactly what this is. This is the Brexit horror movie. This is Convin- this <laughs> convince. This is convince me Boris Johnson isn't up in the Royals' apartment right now. <laughs> um, no, there's the. This is that's exactly what this is. It is class warfare as horror. The the horror of class warfare. What do you think,
0: Ash? Uh, Yeah, I I really like this line of thought, right? And I think um, it kind of depends on how or what rather what framework we want to use to discuss this question, right? If we're talking about genre in the conventional sense, where where genre is really nothing but an artifact of capitalism and marketing, right? You know, Mm -hmm. what what shelf on, uh, you know, the store are we going to put this movie on? Is this going to go on the horror shelf, the drama shelf, the romance shelf, you know? But if we want to talk about because if we want to talk about that, like, sure, this definitely isn't a horror movie. It's got a stunning lack of ghosts and creepy music stings. It can't fit on the shelf next to Halloween. But I think if we want to have like um, a more structural conversation about like what it means to exist within different categories of media, Mm. like I always kind of go back to that uh, Derrida essay, uh, Participation in Genre. And and the the whole kind of point of that is like thing things don't really belong to a particular genre so much as they start to participate in them, yeah. And and this movie I, I would definitely put this on the lower end of participation in horror and in the gothic and things like that. But it's still nevertheless like you know like th- this movie has cannibals. The, this this movie has <laughs> has like just an absurd breakdown of society. We get um. I'm I'm forgetting the character's name but it's someone who lives on the same floor as Lang and he's the guy who at the beginning is just kind of like very uptight about like like he's the homeowners association guy. You know, he, he's he's like <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, you yeah. are you are that, that is not within our homeowners association code. You can't throw that away in that particular receptacle. He's that guy. And then by the end of the film he's literally dressed up as a Nazi. Yep. Right. So so we have like the, these horrific internal mutations of people and like society as uh, an, an entity in a body of itself, mutating and twisting throughout the the entirety of this film, and like, you know, those orgy scenes are are horrific, not not for the specific bodies in them necessarily, but for the fact that like, the people at the top are having like like because they're not even like really like they're just having orgies to have them, you know, it's just how they're killing time now, like I um. I forgot which of, which of the Johns <laughs> made this comment. I'm sorry, but but whoever whoever said that was like, um, you know, like the fall of Rome, you know, where where it's just kind of like this complete like 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 spectacle of pleasure that's still somehow totally anhedonic, and like that is on itself horrifying when you consider that like the pool is now full of dead bodies and trash just a few floors below them.
1: I think it. I think this is absolutely a horror film. Like I think it's unquestionably a horror film, um, precisely because uh, for for the reasons that both of you have outlined, right? That this is this is uh, the horror and violence here is a diagnosis. It is in a, in a motif of the film. It's the moment where we peel back the skin of the face of mm, ne- yes. neoliberal, neoliberal capitalism. Right? It <clears throat> it promises us so much. It promises us that we would never even have to go outside. You know, you never have to talk to another person if you don't want to. And isn't that amazing? But this film, you know, peels back the face. And what you see is this kind of visceral, bloody, physical, uh, disaster. But it's, that's where, that's why this is a horror film. It is, it is horror as, as diagnosis. It is, it is horror as ideological intensification, taking the pre, the already existing conditions and not even turning them up to 11 I don't think just just turning them <laughs> a, a notch further to show you what what is uh, I mean it'd be very easy for us for us to be accused of like catastrophizing everything but I don't think that's the case at all because as you said John like this is what they're going to do right <laughs> this, this well, is exactly <laughs> well I literally
2: just had this conversation today and I said like, I don't think if it's catastrophizing, if you're just reading what the news is.
1: <laughs> yes. You know, and, and yeah, all we need to do is, is look at the news and show there's that, is that great, um, there's that great quote from uh, capitalist realism says that coffee bars and internment camps can coexist. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the, the apocalypse is, is not, down the road it's not still to come it's what we live through um, right i mean all you have to do is
0: like like i mean i don't know not, not to do like the super standard leftist thing but like history you know clap emoji history like just just go look look at like uh the statements of just like kind of ground level nazi soldiers after after the fall of the third reich you know, these dudes like half of these dudes were like, uh, "I had no idea what we're doing. I was just kind of like manning a, a barracks station. I w- w- what Holocaust? What are you talking about, man?" And like, like this profound ignorance of of the suffering and nightmare that is being inflicted around people is one hundred percent capable of being pushed out of conscious thought.
1: There's something grim. There's something grim for the kids at home. So uh I think we've we've shown that once again the the horror vanguard line that all films are, films are horror films <laughs> is inarguably true. Are there any any final thoughts that we want to bring in as we as we start to wrap things up?
2: Uh, the mu- the score of this uh, movie is great, particularly the opening score the tower opens sounds exactly like. A like a new mall is opening. Oh yeah. But it keeps but it keeps getting like it keeps getting into like lower registries and more minor keys. So it's like a mall is opening, but something is terribly wrong with
1: them. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I love the score for this film. I think the score yeah. is incredible and the and the soundtrack and music choices oh, are so yeah. on point. Uh I love the fact that Ben Wheatley does not care about three-act structures. Uh, oh yeah, there's there's no third act. It's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, d- doesn't care about that at all. I love the fact that it is it it is significantly. It shows Darren Aronofsky to be the absolute hack that he is, um, <laughs> uh, the the official horror vanguard nemesis. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is true. Aronofsky is it's, uh, very it's bad. Genuinely one of the most interesting and, and politically radical British horror films of the last decade.
0: Yeah, there's there's so much to discuss with this film. I think one of one of the lines that I really enjoyed was um, uh, Simmons, the guy who is Royal's bodyguard, uh, towards the end of the film. When when even when Royal's power over the system has kind of lost, been lost to him, uh, uh, Royal is trying to give some orders to Simmons, and Simmons just kind of looks up at him and says, "I don't work for you. I work for the building." Yeah, and like that is that is just so damning, and I I immediately went to. To as as I suppose I want to do, I immediately went to like okay, like what theoretical frameworks does this engage with? And this kind of engages with the idea that like <clears throat> capitalism and the state aren't distinct entities, right? Capitalism and the state are co-constitutive of each other. Like royal, as the embodiment of kind of like this total neoliberal capitalism. Like even even after he himself is kind of like like his his hands have left the wheel, you know Simmons, uh, he's there for the state, the tower as state
1: rather. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is come on, this is something that uh, you can see with the American presidency, right? You have you have someone whose hands are not on the wheel, uh, <laughs> but but the machinery of state still functions. It still does exactly what it was intended to do, but it does it with ever increasing callousness and and viciousness and cruelty. Because, uh, as Flavia Dodson says, the cruelty was always the point. But now that the public face has been uh, distanced enough that you can dial that up without anyone seeming to notice or care.
2: Oh, I had, I had a much more materialist take on that. I just immediately thought about all these um, extremely rich people who are building like climate change bunkers in New Zealand and they're constantly like one of them was like asking a security expert like well how do we make sure our guards don't turn on us and they're like well you have to like essentially make them into minor feudal lords treat them like members of the family and the response was unanimously no but what about bomb (laughs) callers so I'm you know like all these bunkers like there's the ideal situation that these are a lot of rich people who are being paid to be taken hostage
1: yeah basically Mm -hmm. All of them, all of them are going to get murdered. All of them,
2: right? And then we're just going to have like feudal chiefs. It'll be great.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's a really interesting uh. read, and I think that you can apply that to the whole film, right? Like Royal is essentially doing what a lot of these like modern day bunker lunatic are attempting to do. Yeah, all of all of the uh, the, the kind of like poor and working class people in the tower work for the tower and then the the you know like we we get that line where you have to apply to be to become a member of the towers community and so royal is kind of weeding out like oh who will be interesting right and like he picks he picks lang because lang is like he's a novelty you know he's not an, an aristocrat he's not worthy he's just particularly interesting for him
1: yeah absolutely absolutely um and this idea that um, Really, the, the the individual power doesn't really matter, you know, because you can get rid of royal. The structure is still there. Mm-hmm. the the those those that that capitalist totality still exists. It isn't a case of oh well, it's just one bad person. Yeah, uh, it's it's a case of it's the it's the entire thing, right? It's the entire high rise. The only way the the only way uh, out in this case would be to tear the whole thing down.
2: Well, right, and that that comes uh, into a reading of the film as a. Another sort of attack, which is like the problems of social democracy is that they don't fundamentally change the power structure. Yes. They just sort of ease the structure a bit. And unless you do that, well, rich people have a lot of time and they can just wait mm-hmm. until the time comes where they can reassert themselves.
1: Yeah, they've gotten really good at uh, inheritance law <laughs> and and, 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 yeah. and finding sort of quiet offshore tax havens to store Genuinely colossal amounts of, of of money, like Scrooge McDuck, <laughs> reality warping <laughs> levels of money. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so this idea that there can be, well, this is the ultimate point, right? Which is that the contradictions of capitalism uh, cannot be ameliorated in such an extent that you'll get rid of them entirely, unless you get rid of capitalism. Well, okay then, let's do that. <laughs> All right, everyone. Yeah, yeah. Good, good meeting. Break. <laughs> I think I think that sounds like a great idea, right? Right. <laughs> we should we should think about looking into that. You know, I, th- I think
0: I think you're on to something there. How about we write uh, three, maybe maybe try for four volumes on the subject? I think we could really hit something <laughs> off. Uh,
1: what What would the fourth volume be about, Ash?
0: oh man uh i i i'm thinking right off the top of my head we can talk about uh hot button issues of the day like gamer girl bath water
1: <laughs> uh, and uh i mean that's the vital vital part of the struggle but, <laughs> <laughs> um i think that probably brings us to a good stopping point right
2: <laughs> the stopping point of civilization yes yeah
1: well, yeah, yeah. The, the, the end of history again. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. Um, but uh, thank you so much, John, for coming on to talk about this genuinely incredible film. Um, where can listeners find you and find and support your work?
2: Right. Well, my website is dot. Uh, Wait, am I johnlevitt.net? No. And you know what? You can find me on Twitter, and from there you can find me <laughs> everywhere else. Who uses websites anymore? My god, what is this, 2003? Uh, I am at L-E-A-V-I-T-T alone. Um, it's a pun that requires you to spell my na- say my name. <laughs>
1: um, but thank you so much once more. For coming. Thank you
2: so much for having me.
1: And And we will see everybody next time.
0: Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay Stay
1: spooky.
2: Bit. Wait, am I John? Bit.net? No. And you know what? You can find me on Twitter, and from there you can find me <laughs> everywhere else. Who uses websites anymore? My god, what is this, 2003? Uh, I am at L-E-A-V-I-T-T alone. Um, it's a pun that requires you to spell my na- say my name. <laughs>
1: um, but thank you so much once more. For coming. Thank
2: you so much for having me.
1: And And we will see everybody next time.
0: Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades, and remember, stay Stay spooky.